Hello and welcome to episode 99 of the Our Lady of Fatima podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you. My name is Terence M. Stanton. This is being recorded on Sunday, February 13th, 2022. And today we're going to take a look at Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre, who I believe will not only be declared a saint one day, but also a doctor of the church. A couple of articles pertaining to him. The first is from the Society of St. Pius X website. And if you go to the biography section, they list more information about him at marcellefebvre.info.en.biography. It begins as follows. The career of Marcel Lefebvre, 1905-1991, began like a star in the ascendant. As a seminarian in Rome, 1923-1930, he earned doctorates in philosophy and theology from the Gregorian University. After he was ordained a priest at the age of just 24 by the future Cardinal Leinart, he began his ministry as the second assistant priest at a working-class parish, but then changed direction and became a religious and a missionary with the Spiritans. After entering the Congregation of the Holy Ghost, 1932, he was sent to Africa, to Gabon, where he remained for 13 years, first as rector of a seminary, but then as head of various mission posts in the bush, such as Lambarain, where he made contact with Dr. Albert Schweitzer. But in the aftermath of the war, he was called back to France to direct the Spiritan Scholasticate in Mortain from 1945 to 1947, deep in the heart of Normandy. Nevertheless, Pope Pius XII reassigned him to Africa as Apostolic Vicar, 1947, then as First Archbishop of Dakar, 1955, in Senegal. As of 1948, the Pope appointed him his Apostolic Delegate for French-speaking West Africa. Excuse me, French-speaking Africa, Morocco, French West Africa, French Equatorial Africa, and Madagascar. Bishop of the Diocese of Toul. After the death of Pius XII, 1958, John XXIII put an end to his African duties, both diplomatic and pastoral, and appointed him bishop of the Little Diocese of Toul in France, 1962. But Marcel Lefebvre remained there only six months, since he was soon elected superior general of the Congregation of the Holy Ghost, 1962 to 1968, which at that time had more than 5,000 members. Meanwhile, John XXIII appointed him assistant at the papal throne and member of the Central Preparatory Commission for Vatican Council II. Archbishop Lefebvre participated actively in Vatican II as a council father, 1962 to 1965. He distinguished himself by organizing a group of fathers who were determined to counteract the leaders of the liberal wing. Society of St. Pius X In 1968, he left office as Superior General, preferring to submit his resignation rather than to support destructive reforms of religious life in his congregation. He was retired at the age of 63, but the following year he founded in Freiburg, Switzerland, an international seminary and then a priestly society which, although approved by the local ordinary, became a sign of contradiction. Paul VI later said of him, Archbishop Lefebvre is the cross of my pontificate. After the Vatican sanctions, Against his priestly society, 1975, and against him personally, 1976, his work would have to live, it seemed, on the periphery of the church. 
And yet the, quote, forbidden mass that he celebrated in Lille in August 1976, attended by 10,000 laity, had enormous repercussions throughout the world. It popularized the Iron Bishop, the intrepid defender of the traditional mass, who opposed the reforms that were all over the map in the church, emptying novitiates, seminaries, and parish churches. Consecrating Bishops In 1988, he ensured that his work of restoring the Catholic priesthood would continue by consecrating four bishops in a cone, even though Pope John Paul II had forbidden it. For that act, he incurred the gravest of all ecclesiastical sanctions, which he deemed unjust, like all the previous attempts that were aimed exclusively at forcing him to abandon the good fight of the faith in the name of a misunderstood obedience. He died in Martinier, Switzerland, on March 25, 1991, in profound peace, proud, quote, to have handed on what I received, alluding to the words of St. Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, which he had engraved on his tombstone. Salvific work. What is the common thread running through the life of this nonconformist prelate who claimed never to have acted impulsively on the basis of his personal ideas? What is the force that impelled that obedient Roman Catholic churchman, Roman in mind and heart, to confront and contradict two popes? What is the unifying theme of his turbulent career? What sort of faith did that man have, who cited love for God, love for Jesus Christ, and love for the Church as his reasons for taking such serious steps? Instead of considering him as the rebel bishop, should we not see him as a man led and guided by a providential plan for a salvific work? And this article closes with words of Archbishop Lefebvre at a cone on February 11, 1982. So 40 years and two days ago. He said, that's my vocation. Bishops exist in order to ordain priests. Bishops help the church to expand. And this is how they serve as missionaries. For me, it is most trying. I'm constantly worried because I so dearly wish to give district superiors and the faithful good priests. Let us continue with an article by Kennedy Hall from the Fatima Center located at Fatima.org. This was originally published on Thursday, August 6th, 2020, and is entitled, Who Was Marcel Lefebvre? In an article of this length, it is not my intention to present a comprehensive biography of the man who founded the Society of St. Pius X. There is a larger volume that is highly recommended that presents a detailed account of his life, and it is like reading the life of a saint. My intention is to instead present a brief taste of the life of magnanimity and uncompromising virtue that filled the days of the good bishop's earthly life. Marcel Lefebvre hailed from the city of Turcoing, I'm probably pronouncing that, incorrectly, T-O-U-R-C-O-I-N-G, in northern France. His father was a successful businessman specializing in the field of manufacturing, so common in that time and place in France during the 20th century. His mother and father were manifestly devout, and not only did they possess great personal piety, but they transmitted the faith in such a penetrating way to their eight children that five of them answered God's call to religious vocations. It really is a shame that so much unfair controversy surrounds Marcel's life, as it perhaps acts as a stumbling block in the way of a proper investigation into the courage and sanctity of his parents. 
you can only transmit to your children what you have to give. And in the case of the Archbishop's parents, the font of divine grace seems to have flowed plentifully through their prayers and sacrifice. Marcel spent the first portion of his priesthood as a missionary in French-speaking Africa. Throughout these years, he demonstrated that he was, in fact, a jack-of-all-trades. Throughout his time there, he could be found educating young men from newly baptized families, as well as fixing machines and building bridges and fishing villages, always while wearing a cassock. He mastered local dialects and even oversaw successful farming operations in the missions and outposts under his care. The man who was raised in the chill of the terrain near the Belgian border became like a native African, even coming to love the life of a bushman. Eventually, he merited the post of Archbishop of Dakar, situated in modern-day Senegal. In reality, it was not simply a city diocese, but instead a vast region that he oversaw. Under his guidance, the Catholic faith expanded at an astonishing rate throughout the continent, now seen by many as the most faithful region in the world to Jesus Christ. The combination of an inherited savvy for business, a gentle yet uncompromising personality, and a providential exceptional theological education resulted in a man who could navigate the developing sub-Saharan African landscape with lasting influence. As the Second Vatican Council approached, he was asked to consult on the preparatory documents. Ever the loyal son of Rome, he obliged. The confusing and tragic story of the Second Vatican Council is best told elsewhere, but suffice it to say that Marcel Lefebvre labored tirelessly on the side of tradition. Out of fidelity to the Holy See, he assented to the documents of the Council, although with deep reservation. The aftershock of the Council was received like a chastisement for faithful Catholics, with some returning to historically ornate parishes, only to see stadium seating and grotesque architecture. This became all too real to Lefebvre, as he was approached by seminarians to whom it seemed that they entered into priestly formation for a religion that was now being lost. By the tens of thousands, Catholics left the pews, sisters the convents, and brothers the cells of the monastery. Young men who had served the altar for years never stepped foot in a church again. Where were the clerics and ordained fathers of the church who could resist these changes so damaging to the faith? Where could we find a man who would ensure that his spiritual children would receive their inheritance? Archbishop Lefebvre was the man for that calling. He formed the priestly fraternity of the Society of St. Pius X in an effort to preserve the holy sacrifice of the Mass and the Catholic priesthood as well as authentic Catholic doctrine and liturgy. He was wholeheartedly dedicated to maintaining the traditional formation of priests. For 20 years after the Council, he led that uncompromising minority of faithful Catholics that today are called traditionalists. In brighter days gone by, the so-called traditionalist was simply called a Catholic. In any case, nearing the end of his life, Lefebvre knew that there was no visible way in which the traditional formation of priests would continue. A bishop is needed to ordain priests. Normally, a papal mandate is needed to ordain a bishop. But as with many matters of church governance, a grave state of necessity can bring about seemingly drastic actions. Like the great heroes that resisted the Arian heresy, and even Pope Liberius in his taciturn acceptance of a semi-Arian creed, Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre did what he believed to be the will of God by consecrating four bishops without the blessing of the Holy Father. For much of the world... This seemed like an act of schism. Yet in the mind of Lefebvre, it was a necessary action to preserve the transmission of the Catholic faith. 
He knew the laws as well as anyone and was an expert theologian and a prudent man. He knew that, over her 2,000-year history, the church had not always insisted that the selection of a bishop needed to be approved by Rome. He also understood the difference between consecrating a bishop to oversee a territory with canonical jurisdiction, a schismatic act, which establishes a parallel church, and consecrating auxiliary bishops who have the sole purpose of carrying on sacramental ministry, such as the ordination of good priests. Far too many people are unaware of this crucial distinction, and its importance is grossly underappreciated by most commentators. Before he carried out these fateful consecrations in 1988, he waited until God gave him a sign that warranted extraordinary measures. That sign came in 1986 at Assisi, when the world watched as the Vicar of Christ stood in a supposed equality with a diverse array of leaders from the religions of the world. It was at this moment when the King of Kings was seemingly put on the level of the fallen angels who continually tempt souls away from the Holy Trinity. It was not only the act of Assisi itself that demonstrated the sickliness of the institutions of the Church, but also the fact that most were so unmoved by such a scandal that Archbishop Lefebvre was almost alone in his public resistance. Our world is so far removed from the great ages of faith that we have become almost incapable of recognizing the prophetic among us, crying out in the wilderness and calling religious and civil leaders to repent. There are those who persist to this day that he was a schismatic and others who cried disobedience. Yet, from whom did the archbishop separate himself? He certainly did not separate himself from our Lord and did nothing to officially leave the boundaries of the Roman Catholic Church. Furthermore, we cannot call a man disobedient when he will not bend the knee to the spirit of the age, so fleeting in its rapid decay. Some have also suggested that he did not need to consecrate the bishops, as God would have found another way. Is it not just as possible that God selected the French bishop to stand firm in his public counter-revolution against the spirit of the Antichrist that had infected Rome? Lefebvre was a prophet, in that he spoke the hidden things of God not yet seen by all, and for this he suffered as prophets do. But if we enjoy the fruits of tradition, then we have this man to thank. Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre did not only give us the Society of St. Pius X, but he reminded us of the stuff of saints in times of crisis. The fight for orthodoxy and tradition still rages on, but at least we now have many good priests who offer the holy sacrifice as it should be done, thanks in great part to the efforts of Marcel Lefebvre, the St. Athanasius of our age. And the footnote here says, a few biographical resources we recommend are the following. Number one, Marcel Lefebvre by Bishop Bernard Tissier de Malaret, Angeles Press, Kansas City, 2004. Number two, a three-volume series by Michael Davies titled Apologia pro Marcel Lefebvre, Angeles Press, Kansas City, 1979. Number three, a biographical video, which I have watched and I highly recommend it. It's excellent. 103 Minutes, Archbishop Lefebvre, a documentary, Angeles Press, Kansas City, 2003, which is available online and in DVD format. Number four, finally, two autobiographical works, My Spiritual Journey, Angeles Press, Kansas City, 1991, and The Little Story of My Long Life, Sisters of the Society of St. Pius X, 2002. I'd like to say something else about his family. Obviously, he received great formation in the family. Parents are 
our first teachers. And there's such an attack now, perhaps the devil's final attack on marriage and family life, that we have to have holy families in order to have holy vocations to the priesthood and to the religious life. And then even before holy families can be formed, it comes down to individual holiness. The man speaking to you in this microphone, you know, I'm responsible for myself, aided by God's grace and growing in holiness, as are you, the individual listening to this. And it's up for these holy people to pass on what we've been given and our faith, no matter what vocation we have, um, as a, a husband and father, as a wife and a mother, as a priest or religious. It all starts with individual holiness and then forming holy families, of course, and building out from there. That's how we change the society. So his family was obviously very holy. And another word about his father in particular, this is from Wikipedia. His parents were devout Catholics who brought their children to daily mass. His father, René, was an outspoken monarchist, devoting his life to the cause of the French dynasty, seeing in a monarchy the only way of restoring to his country its past grandeur and a Christian revival. His father ran aspiring for British intelligence when Turcoing was occupied by the Germans during World War I. René died at age 65 in 1944 in the German concentration camp at Sonnenberg, where he had been imprisoned by the Gestapo because of his work for the French resistance and British intelligence. His body was never recovered. So, Bishop Lefebvre, Archbishop Lefebvre, when he was growing up, already in World War I, and then when he was a man in World War II, saw this wonderful example of his parents, and in particular his father, and his service to God and country, even to the point of death. That's a mighty example for his son to see his father do those things. So it's not surprising that when the chips were down at Vatican II and thereafter, he was virtually one of the only bishops on earth who stood up for tradition. There were others. Um, Bishop DeCastro Meyer's name comes to mind. But he was really leading the, the charge, the counter-revolution, you might say, Vatican II and what happened thereafter with the tampering with the liturgy was the revolution. He was the counter-revolutionary who was always standing up for tradition, who was always standing up for orthodoxy, who was always standing up for protecting our patrimony, what has been given to us down through the generations. And for that, he is to be commended. And as I said at the top of this broadcast, I believe one day he will be a saint and a doctor of the church. And men much holier than yours truly have said the same thing. So we thank God for giving us holy priests. We thank God for giving us Archbishop Lefebvre. May we be spurred on by his memory to hold fast to tradition and in our own way be counter-revolutionaries in a world that has lost its way, and let us make that return back to tradition and back to the faith of our fathers. 
let's conclude by offering up an Ave Maria in honor of Our Lady of Fatima and a prayer in honor of St. Joseph as well. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in mortis nostri. Amen. Prayer to St. Joseph for his soul in purgatory. By Father Donald Calloway. St. Joseph, reigning in heaven with Jesus and Mary, intercede for the souls in purgatory. Today, in particular, I ask you to turn your gaze to the soul who is most forgotten in purgatory. This soul longs to see the face of God, O good Father. Ask the Holy Trinity to take this soul to the glory of heaven today. Remember me, St. Joseph, when I die. I beg you to be prompt in delivering me from purgatory so that I can see you, Jesus, and Mary face to face. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Our Lady of Fatima podcast. Once again, my name is Terrence M. Stanton. Please share this podcast with everyone you know and share the love that our Lord Jesus Christ has for them. And in the words of another famous Archbishop, Fulton J. Sheen, goodbye and God love you.